Our first scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 2. Matthew 2 from verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then would you also turn please to the book of Micah as we continue with our series, Micah chapter 5. I'll read verses 1 through to the first half of verse, verse 5. The text for the sermon, verses 2 to 5a. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labour has borne a child. Then the, the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one will be our peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are yourself our portion, our inheritance. We thank you for making all of the blessings of that inheritance, the blessings of salvation, come to us as that which is won by the Lord Jesus having uh, carried out his work um, for our benefit, that we might receive that inheritance. But help us also to see that the giving of your word and your spirit, that that too is a part of that gift that teaches us about our inheritance and enables us to lay hold of it and is itself part of it. Father, help us to listen now to your word in that light. We pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Covenant people of God, you can uh, imagine the scene when the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem. Large army, massive army with hundreds of thousands of troops, no doubt with their infantry and their cavalry and their chariots and their siege engines, siege devices. How terrifying it must have been for those inside the walls. Perhaps you've seen that kind of thing on movies, but it's certainly not something we have experienced ourselves in our modern time, but uh, perhaps you can still imagine it. The Lord had certainly promised Hezekiah uh, at a certain point in that invasion that he would rescue his people, but at first they didn't know how, and there the Assyrians were, gathered outside the city, ready to try and break in. And no doubt the faithful there must have been waiting for the sign that God was carrying out his promise to deliver them, holding their breath, so to speak, and others perhaps who weren't so faithful, thinking it's not going to happen, God is not going to rescue us, and we are going to be destroyed, we are going to be killed brutally by these Assyrians. Micah 5 verse 1 draws us to that very scene with its call to muster the troops. They've laid siege against us. Muster the troops. And you can hear in your mind perhaps the the shouts and the screams and the terror and the roar of the army outside the walls as those words in 5 verse 1 draw us to that scene. How's the Lord going to save us? When is he going to save us? And then our text gives us an answer. Though perhaps not the answer that people would have been looking for or expected. Because it doesn't give an answer about an immediate rescue from the Assyrian threat. But tells God's people of something much, much bigger and better than that. Two points as we look at that. Two questions. From where will salvation come? And secondly, what will it look like? From where will it come and what will it look like? In the first place then, one of the the neat things about this book, like many other parts of the scripture, but certainly it's true of Micah, that you get these very specific prophecies about future events that you could never have predicted ahead of time. Not without revelation from God telling you what was going to happen. True, you might have been able to predict that the Assyrians would come down and invade Judah and lay siege to Jerusalem. At the time the book of Micah was written, you might have been able to guess that one. But you would not have been able to predict that the Babylonians would invade and take the people of God into exile a little over a hundred years after that. And even less so to predict so far ahead regarding something that happened maybe around uh, or over seven centuries, around seven centuries after that again, when Micah jumps with another one of these sudden shifts of scene from the smoke and dust and the terror of the siege and reference to Babylon 
over 100 years after that to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ some seven centuries later. The birth of the Lord Jesus, as it's said here, uh, the birth of the Messiah, the one who would deliver in Bethlehem. And this uh, really then, with this focus on Bethlehem, it really is a tale of two cities. There is a deliberate contrast here between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. The big city Jerusalem under siege, chapter 5, verse 1. And then the contrast, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And this is a contrast This contrast is one of size and significance because Bethlehem was a very small and relatively insignificant town. So small that it was not even numbered among the clans of Judah. And that word uh, clans uh, is a word that literally means thousands in the Hebrew and it was also used to describe a basic unit of their military. They had their thousands, their units of that number. And uh, so the point that's being made here is that Bethlehem is even smaller than that. It's even smaller than those one of those units in the army and certainly not big enough to be labelled as a clan. So small and so insignificant that Micah has to add the word Ephrathah to it to pinpoint it on the map so that people would know where it was and where to find it, uh, because also there was another Bethlehem, which was farther north near the Sea of Galilee, and so he had to pin it down so that they knew which Bethlehem he was talking about. But this use of something very small, the small town of Bethlehem, this is perfectly in keeping with the Lord's preference for choosing that which is small and weak and insignificant and even foolish in the eyes of the world as a vehicle for showing his infinite power and glory and wisdom. A point which I mentioned the other week, citing 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. And doing that, uh, using to show his glory through that which is weak and powerless in itself, That is done so that no man may boast, so that everyone may realise that what comes by way of victory is not something that comes by the strength of man. It could only come from God. No one in Israel or anywhere else would be able to claim justly that salvation came through the strength or through the wisdom of man any more than Hezekiah would be able to claim that he was the one, as the king of Judah, uh, he was the one who broke the siege of the Assyrians. No, it was God that did it. Salvation would come out of Bethlehem, of all places, that tiny, insignificant place. And therefore, that salvation must come from the Lord, not from any other source. That's the reason for choosing and for contrasting here Bethlehem over against Jerusalem. True, insignificant Bethlehem did actually have some significance. It was, after all, the birthplace of King David. Though even there, when God chose David, he did it in the same way and for the same reason. 
He chose the youngest son, the one who, humanly speaking, looked looked least able to be a king who would help deliver Israel from their enemies. The youngest son from a minor family in one of the most insignificant towns, insignificant places, Bethlehem. For that reason, that 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29 principle. And likewise, when he sent the greatest son of David to be born in that same small town, he did basically the same kind of thing, sending his son to be born from within and to be born within an insignificant family in this insignificant town. At the same time, there is also a prophetic significance in the name of this place. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. And the word Ephrathah is a word that means bountiful or fruitful. And the Lord would indeed feed his sheep bountifully with the bread of life, but that would come from one who was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this tiny town. So I want to point out then, and I want to draw your attention to this incongruity of Micah's answer, God's answer, to the terror of the Jerusalem siege. We can paraphrase it this way. Uh, You're all looking, it's as if Micah's saying, you're all looking for salvation. You're all wondering when that salvation is going to come down and this siege, all this noise and terror around us, when it's going to be smashed and God is going to wipe the floor with them. We're all wondering about that. And the answer to that is, look to Bethlehem. That tiny, insignificant town a few kilometres away. And you can imagine the response. What? Bethlehem? How can Bethlehem help? Bethlehem's nothing. Don't be ridiculous, Micah. Bethlehem's got nothing to do with this. In fact, uh, this prophet, he seems a little bit obsessed with this one-horse town. Going on about the Tower of the Flock in chapter 4, verse 8. Another reference to the Bethlehem area. And uh, then uh, that's the reference to the watchtower at Bethlehem. And now what he's saying here in chapter 5, verse 2. And how is any of this going to help us? Well, this is really the struggle that God's people often have. To accept by faith that which we cannot see. Or in this case, that which seems too insignificant and too far distant as well to help us in our daily life. In this connection, note that the promised help is far distant because not only is it a small town that we're talking about here, but it's also help that is promised for a far-off future. In verse 3, God warns them that he is going to give his people up for a time. In fact, they were going to suffer centuries of hostility, attack, exile, more attacks, and then even the abomination of Antiochus Epiphanes. Subjugation to Rome and such things, all of that was going to happen of the ensuing seven centuries before the deliverer would come from Bethlehem. Okay, so what does this teach us? 
Well, it teaches us that delaying a delay in God helping us in our struggle does not mean that he is not going to help us and that he is not going to deliver us at all. And second, it shows us that when he delivers us, he can use things that to us may seem very small and insignificant and inadequate, even things that are invisible to us, in order to bring that rescue. When you are struggling with sin and with the misery of this world and the problems of this life, other Christians may tell you, well, it's simple. You just trust and you read your Bible and you pray and you talk to Christian friends and you may do those things and you may say to yourself, I've tried all of that, but it just doesn't help. So you go back to your friends and they, can't, they say to you, well, and you, you say to them, I can't see any help on the horizon. And they tell you that you should take comfort then from the promise of relief in the next life. And you say, well, that, that's too far away. That doesn't help me now. But you see, this is the nature of faith. To take promises like this one here in, Matthew, in, Mark, in Micah 5 and to realise from this that when the Lord says that he is going to deliver you ultimately and he is going to deliver you in the future life, when he says that, that has an implication for now. That means that he is going to preserve you in the now so that you will remain one of his until you enter that future life, as long as you keep looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Micah promised here. He promised them that there would be a continuing remnant of God's people who would be rescued and preserved by the Messiah when he came in that distant time. And that implied that he would save a remnant from this very siege against the Assyrians. And he would save a remnant from Babylonian exile. And he would save a remnant from the, the Greeks when they attacked and Antiochus Epiphanes and from the Romans when they attacked. And he would keep his church going and surviving until the Messiah came and after. And so even though Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, they did not have any idea how God was going to break that siege. But they knew that God would preserve his church. And they knew it from this promise. And it's essentially the same with us today. We know that God will preserve his church and he will preserve his people. He has promised that for the future and that has an implication for the now. And we also know that as he outworks that promise, he uses those very things that to us may seem inadequate, insufficient. Things that we can't see, the work of the Holy Spirit. Things that sometimes we, well, we underestimate their power. We underestimate the power of God's word. We read God's word when we're going through a hard time and we say, well, it's not really helping me very much. Sometimes because we're so busy wringing our own hands in our distress that we actually block ourselves from getting the benefit and seeing the power of that word to help us in our present distress. God helps his people through the communion of weak saints. He helps his people through the, uh, the, the, the ministry of a weak church 
He helps his people through prayer to someone we can't see. And he does that using the work of his powerful, his infinitely powerful spirit, his powerful word grounded in the work of his great and powerful son. And we need to learn to not to undervalue the power of that help now as it carries us through to the future. Well, this remarkable prophecy about the coming of the Messiah to Bethlehem continues. And it tells us also what the deliverer and his deliverance will be like. Our second and final point, what will it look like? First, concerning the Messiah himself, we're told several things. We're told that he will go forth from Bethlehem for me. That is to say, for God, for God's glory, as God's servant, in other words. I think there of Isaiah 53, Isaiah 42 verse 1, other passages about the Messiah coming as the servant. Uh, We are told that he will go forth to be ruler in Israel, which implies his kingship, verse 2b, and that this great king will in fact be a shepherd king, verse 4a. We are told that he is eternal, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity, verse 2. Even though he would be born in Bethlehem to she who is in labour. Which uh, when we read that we probably immediately think of the virgin birth. But it may in this case be a reference to the Messiah coming forth from the very Israel who was currently writhing like a woman in labour. Verses 9 and 10 in chapter 4. You take it either way. And then fourth, we are told that he will be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 4. Though he would come to this small and insignificant town at first, his fame would grow until he became known over all the earth. Such is the nature of his greatness. And of course, that has happened. The name of Jesus Christ is now known. His fame is known all over the earth. We are also told what he will do. We're told about what he would be like. We're told about what he would do, his work, his mission. He would come to rule, as I mentioned. He would come to, even though he would give his people over to invasion and suffering due to their sins for a long time, but he would then gather the remnant The remainder of his brethren, verse 3. And not only a remainder from Israel, but by implication also a remainder from the Gentiles, from the nations, from all over the earth. And that is why his fame would be great to the ends of the earth. Verse 4a. Sorry, verse 3. Uh, He would shepherd his flock in the strength and the majesty of the Lord his God. Verse 4a. He would preserve his flock and they will remain, verse 4b, and this one will be our peace, verse 5a. And you can uh, tie that in also with Ephesians 2, verse 14, about Jesus being our peace. Peace with God, peace with fellow man, and ultimately, peace on earth. 
Now, again, in these words, we see the, the very specific description of the Messiah's person and works. Details that have been fulfilled in every respect by the Lord Jesus, fulfilled several hundred years after this, this prophecy. A prophecy that is the answer to all of Judah's fears as the Assyrians lay siege, because it guarantees them a future, it guarantees a remnant, it guarantees also an end to their enemies. Telling of a Messiah who is infinitely greater than the kings of the earth, also the king of Jerusalem at that time, infinitely greater than Hezekiah, and infinitely more caring as their shepherd king. They just have to trust that, as we do too. To trust that he will deliver them, to trust that he will deliver us from our current problems, in order to make us remain under his rule and care. Congregation, this particular passage is regarded as the centrepiece of the book of Micah. Micah places it here towards the middle of the book, surrounded by grim warnings. But nevertheless, this is the heart of the message. Though it's surrounded, you might say, it is besieged. This passage in the book of Micah is besieged by dark tidings. There's grim news around us too, in world events, and from within this country too. And perhaps at times you feel besieged, or you feel that the church is besieged. From where will our salvation come? Well, the heart of it is, it is this. It will come from the one who went forth from Bethlehem. The one whose gospel, whose fame has spread to the ends of the earth. And what will this salvation look like? It will look like a cross. And it will look like a shepherd's watchtower. Guaranteeing our rescue, our preservation and our peace under our shepherd king. Amen. <clears throat> Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your infinite power and glory and wisdom, seen in bringing deliverance through that which appears small and weak and foolish to the world. We thank you that this is seen above all in the Lord Jesus coming into this world. Will you help us to trust in his deliverance? even when your aid may feel to us at times as if it is distant. But help us not to be influenced by the world's view that your help and salvation are insignificant, for we know that the name and the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ has gone to the ends of the earth and that he is indeed our peace. We thank you for this and pray it in his name. Amen. The Messiah came to deliver his people from all those who seek our ruin, as uh, Satan certainly does seek our ruin. Psalter Hymnal 333, stanzas 1, 2 and 4. We'll stand to sing, and would you please remain standing for the blessing and doxology. 333, stanzas 1, 2 and 4.
sing as our doxology, we sing number 310. The God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.